I got a gift this week, um, and I'm going to um, I'm going to pronounce it, but it doesn't really matter how I pronounce it this evening because uh, Paul and Mel Jessup and their family aren't here. It did matter this morning how I pronounce it because, of course, they're fluent in Japanese, and this is a Japanese Japanese word, just like Charlie. This is also a bit French. Um, but the gift that I got was a, a piece of broken pottery. And you might think, well, that's hardly a gift. <laughs> Somebody who doesn't like you, Stuart. But this, this piece of broken pottery was actually um, put back together again. It was glued together again with this, this beautiful, beautiful gold edging. And uh, I, I believe, let's run with kintsugi. Do you like that? Actually, it would sound more authentic if I said kintsugi. That sounds Japanese, doesn't it? Um, and and that's, that was the, um, the little, or couple, a set of mugs that I, that I received. The, um, the idea behind them, I understand, is to, is to treat a breakage um, or a repair as part of the history of that particular object. And, and the journey, uh, uh, sorry, the joinery, the golden joinery, which puts it back together, is all part of its adornment. So something which was once broken and perhaps, you know, there was disdain that went with that, like, well, that's useless. And, and even your best efforts at fixing it again, putting it back together, getting out the Araldite and so forth because it was one of those favourite pieces, even that, you know, we, we still know, don't we? We still know. It's, it's, it's got a crack in it. The handle could come off again at any moment. It's not quite right. But the idea with Kintsugi is that, that actually it's better than it was. It is now not just a functional object, it's a piece of art. It's actually something beautiful. It's actually because of the very breakage, it's actually now put back together in, in such a way that, it, that it, becomes, it becomes an adornment. It becomes um, an ornament to be appreciated and, and so forth. Jerusalem was a little bit like that. Jerusalem was a broken city. Jerusalem was not quite right. The Israelites who lived in Jerusalem as they were about to invite the Messiah, the king, into, into the very centre, into the temple again, it was sitting under Roman rule. The glory days, long, long, um, long forgotten. And so when Jesus was ushered in this, this Palm Sunday, it was, was with a sense that he might take something which was broken and restore to it the, the former glory. This has been a little bit of a hard season in the life of our church. And different people have had different words of encouragement for us at different times. Rachel Morrell, uh, Rachel and Rowan serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators, and Rachel has a bit of a gift with words. And, and she just had a poem laid on her heart a few weeks ago. And she's given me permission. She actually read this, this poem in the morning. And so if you don't quite like my reading of it tonight, you missed out. I'm sorry, I'm not Rachel. But, but I'll try and do it justice. But it's a beautiful poem. She introduced it this morning with a very simple explanation that the church is Christ's bride. She's beautiful. But she's got some opposition. Satan. Satan does not like the bride. But the second opposition to the church, she remarked, is the church itself. And so she introduced this poem. Whilst battle rages all around, she watches safe on solid ground, and Satan waits 
she tries to reach out where she can to touch the hearts of fellow man. And Satan prowls. Whilst outwardly, she's in good health. Behind closed doors, she harms herself. And Satan cheers. The bride of Christ, his precious crown, who from within can be torn down by Satan's lies. The truth is, she can overcome. The wounds are deep. It can be done. But Satan's strong. We need to tend our every part to share forgiveness from our heart. To humbly love, no questions asked. Put others first as we've been tasked till Satan falls. It's from Rachel. I know it would, would help if you had the words sometimes in listening to a poem, doesn't it? And, and if you would like the words to that, you can um, ask me later and, and we can get that for you. It's a reminder, I think, that the church is Christ's bride. She's beautiful, but she does have her enemies. God is strong. When she stumbles, when she falls, he loves nothing more than to, to pick her up. And, not surprisingly, I guess there are times in our church where we kind of feel a little bit like the bride has stumbled. She's not looking perhaps as pure or splendid as, as she might, and that's a part of our history. But this story that we're looking at today is a part of our future. So let me read to you Mark chapter 11. We're skipping just a, the last part of chapter 10 for the moment. We'll come back to that in coming weeks. But by, by jumping through to chapter 11... We're um, right there at the triumphal entry, and so we're able to, to pick up the passion of Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11, we're going to read from verses 1 to 11. This can be our story. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, You'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and drew their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jerusalem was a broken pot. It was a cracked jar. And yet it could be something more than that. 
under the hands of God, if God was invited into that brokenness, a little bit like your life and my life, he loves to do this with the church itself, and that is enter into the brokenness, enter into the pain, and actually bring about something far greater than the pain and the brokenness itself. Indeed, he loves to repair it in such a way that it would give him even greater glory. A number of years ago, uh, you know, many of you, that we served on one of OM's ships, the MV Doulos, and, and there was a, a director at the time. His name was Francois Vosloo. And uh, Francois was um, from South Africa. He spoke Afrikaans. And, uh, and I didn't learn a whole lot of Afrikaans, but I would sit often in meetings with him. And, and Francois would have to take calls from time to time. And, and there were actually you know, quite, a, quite a number of South Africans on the ship. Um, at that time, and so he would just break into Afrikaans and, and you know, his, his, his heart language and so forth. And I missed most of what it was that he was saying, but every now and again I'd pick up a word, and I definitely picked up how he finished off every conversation. It seemed like all of a sudden there was this perfect Afrikaans, and then he would break into English, and he would tell whoever it was that he was speaking to to buy a donkey. I picked up on this, I was kind of a little confused, and I was thinking, huh, what's with that? And he would take another phone call and chat away in his Afrikaans, and then right at the end, he'd tell them too to buy a donkey. Well, this went on for some time, and I don't know if it's the first, second, or third meeting, but eventually I, I just had to, it got the better of me. I go, Francois, why do you finish off every sentence and tell people to buy a donkey? And he looked at me strangely for a moment. What? I don't tell people to buy a donkey. He said, you do, you do. You finish the conversation, he said, buy a donkey. And uh, he said, oh, that means, thank you very much. He's simply in Afrikaans, it means thank you very much. What they do with the donkey, I don't know. But, but it simply means thank you very much. And um, I, I guess this passage in, in some respects, you know, reminded me of this. Instead of buy a donkey, it's borrow a donkey. It's a very strange task that two disciples have. But essentially, everything else that is supposed to transpire at this point would, would not take place if it wasn't for the obedience of just two disciples. We don't even know who they are. It's a very simple act of obedience, but because of this, everything else is able to take place. They have to go into town, verse 2 says, and they have to do something rather odd. Seemingly, this isn't somebody that they know. And so, yeah, go see... Go see, you know, Mickey, Mickey's donkeys for hire and go and hire. No, 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 this, they just go into town. They find a cult. They start to untie it. If they're asked what's going on, they simply give that explanation. And they're obedient. They have to go and borrow a donkey. It's a simple thing. But it's a beautiful thing. It really is a beautiful thing. I don't know that I really conveyed this very well this morning. But I was thinking about the triumphal entry. Now, I don't know if, let me, let me try and capture it a little bit more tonight for you. If you could picture in the Gospels one act of obedience that you just think might bless the heart of God, and you could put yourself into, into that position, you know, would it, be, would it be Simon carrying the cross of Jesus? Would it be, what, what would it be? Would it be Mary, the mother of Jesus, sort of raising him? There is a myriad of examples, different times that the disciples were able to, to minister to Jesus and bless his heart. But, you know, I wonder whether borrowing a donkey might be right up there. Now you're probably thinking, Stuart, <laughs> really? This is Jesus' triumphal entry. 
in chapter 13, verse 26, Jesus speaks of his ultimate return. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Truth is, we actually might see this in our day. <laughs> I'm praying so. We actually might see this in our day. If not, we're going to be caught up in it anyway. We know that for sure. In that beautiful way in which God is sovereign over all time, those who have already died and, and those who are still alive will all be caught up together and be, and be raised at that, that end time. And we will see it. We will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, here's the thing. What is different between that moment, that moment we call the second coming, and this moment? This moment we call the triumph, the triumphant entry. What's the difference? From God's perspective, zip. Because God saw his son being obedient to him. And in his eyes, this was his beautiful son in all of his glory and all of his splendor because he saw who it was coming triumphantly into Jerusalem. The only difference between the second coming and this moment is the way that we see it. We saw a man coming on a donkey, but in the heavenly realm, what was seen very, very differently. Here, two disciples, through simple acts of obedience, actually got to, as it were, help choreograph essentially an event which foreshadows the very second coming of Jesus Christ. Do you see the, do you see the incredible privilege that they had? How beautiful. They actually got to participate in choreographing the Son of Man, the Son of God, God's own Son, coming triumphantly into Jerusalem. Something which, again, it's just being foreshadowed here, something which would happen spectacularly again at the end of the age, what we call the second coming, but here it is being played out on earth and they got to be a part of it. We don't even know who they are. We don't know their names. It was just a simple act of obedience, a very, very simple thing. But this simple act of obedience produced the sweetest worship the earth had ever seen. It was a simple thing. This is a little bit perhaps more of a, an example that works if you're, if you're a bit of an Aussie rules fan. But in AFL... Sometimes those simple acts, those little things, they're called one percenters. Coaches will talk of the one percenters, just those little things. It wasn't that amazing, amazing, spectacular run out of the center and, and goaling from, you know, 70 meters out. It wasn't something like that. No, it's just a one percenter, just a little thing. But put them all together and it all of a sudden helps a team win. A one percenter actually... They didn't even record statistics on them up until recently. 
You know, they'd record statistics for the marks that you took, for the goals, the, the kicks, the possessions, and so forth. All of those things, you know, um, uh, yards gained, meters gained, all of those things they had st- statistics for. But one percenters didn't even catch the eye of the statisticians until recently. Now they do. A one percenter is, is shepherding. It's kind of somebody is running through, there's an opposition player here, and so you shepherd so that that other player can get to where they're supposed to be. Another one is smothering. Well, this is heroic. Somebody's about to kick a ball and you throw your body in front of it. You know, Hardly glamorous. You never see kind of front pages, do you, with, oh, what a smother. That's a one percenter. Knock-ons. The ball is bouncing in front of you and they're awkward at the best of times. You're about to be swamped and killed by several players, but you get just a moment to to tap it on, to knock it on to another player who's free, grabs the ball, runs on and gets the glory. Spoils. Somebody's going to take take a mark just in front of goal and you get to punch it out of the way and make sure that they do not get a kick in front of that goal because if they did, bad news for your team. One percenters. Very rarely were these the sorts of things that, that people would take photos of and say, hooray, they're little things, simple, simple acts of obedience and so forth that the coach has demanded of the team. But when a team is faithful to them, it all adds up and it makes a difference. I wonder what the one percenters are in church life. This passage is a reminder that we all get to be like those disciples a disciple that can be trusted with the little things, little things that ultimately will make a way for the king. I don't know about you, but I'm inspired by these disciples. And in my Christian walk, it reminds me to to be a disciple, to be a son of God who is committed to the one percenters, the little things, the little things that ultimately make a big difference. When we first joined the ship, the Dulos, morale was at an all-time low. We were invited into into leadership and and I never really did get my head around why was morale so low. But, But there were two intakes a year and over a cycle of two years, that's ultimately four intakes. But it's also as the two year period for a particular intake comes to a finish, it's also the completion. And there was one, we called it a pre-ship. There was one pre-ship that that at this particular time just couldn't wait to leave the ship. I didn't know what happened. I didn't want to ask too many questions, to be quite honest, but I knew that it was taking a toll on the ship's company. Everybody had, you know, in this particular pre-ship, for some reason, had just already checked out. I'm I'm heading home soon. And I remember chatting with my friend uh, Kenny Gann on one occasion, and Kenny and I were just talking about it and talking about how can we turn around this last pre-ship so that they end up, you know, kind of going home, kind of glad to have come and, and served with OM, having glad that they came to the ships and, and going back somehow home and to their home church and so forth with a bit of a, a kick in their step and a desire to, to help extend the kingdom of God. We decided that, frankly, there wasn't a lot that could be done from a leadership point of view. It was probably going to happen with just one heart changed at a time. And so we, we 
emphasized that in our morning devotions. We talked about the importance of prayer and so forth. And we, we prayed ourselves and really pressed into this to kind of see if we could, if we could see a heart change for this pre-ship. I was to run a training course this particular week. And, and honestly, there was, a, there was a girl by the name of Ruth. Actually, it was many, many years ago. I don't remember her surname. She was from Switzerland. And she was one of this group from the pre-ship that morale was low. Something had hurt her, and I, I, I really didn't know what. But I also knew that people followed her. She could influence a group. And I was not looking forward, honestly, to running this training course with her in that group. I just sort of thought to myself, oh, she, like I have no qualms with her, but boy, she can really influence a group and she's going to make that training course a pretty tough one unless something changes. On the Monday morning when this training course was set to go, I had everything set up the front and at the podium there and guess who was first into the room? It was this girl, Ruth. I was thinking, hello, <laughs> you know, here it all goes. And she came up to me right at the podium at the start of the training course and she just had a different countenance. And she smiled at me and I thought at first she may have been being a little sarcastic or something, but she said, is there anything I can do to help you? And I stared at her, sorry, is there anything I can do to help you? Would you like a cup of coffee? Would you like a drink of water? How can I help you? And I couldn't believe it. I, I, I said, well, I would love a cup of coffee, actually. I'll never turn one down. It's a life motto. Um, and I said, thank you. That'd be, that'd be awesome. And I was stunned by this. And she went and she got me a cup of coffee and she got me a glass of water. And that whole week, she just served me. To this day, I, I have no idea what happened. I have no idea why the transformation, what happened. All I know is the Lord moved in her heart in some way and she was committed to the one percenters. She was committed to those simple little acts of obedience that absolutely changes the life of a community. And it did. It was a fabulous training course. In fact, this training course got such a great rap from other people that, that people registering for it all of a sudden took off. It went through the roof. Like people were, you know, the next one was packed and we actually had to turn people away. And if you ask me what made the difference, it wasn't from a training perspective. I would say what made the difference was the receptivity of those who were coming to be trained. And if you ask me what made the difference to that, I would say probably that girl, Ruth. Because one way or another, she influenced people. And she was committed to the 1%, those little things, those little act of obedience that were going to make a difference, that produced the sweetest kind of worship. So what was the significance of the donkey? Well, practically speaking, around Passover, expectations were incredibly high. Messianic expectations. Israel wondered, is this the time when the broken pot is going to get fixed? Is this the time where God is going to come in spectacular fashion and, and do something? And because of that, there were a lot more Roman soldiers that poured into the city, just looking around for any sense of an uprising. The fact that Jesus came in on a donkey rather than a horse was probably rather shrewd. But it also said something else. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, here's a fulfillment of a beautiful prophecy which talks about Jesus not coming on a war horse, but coming peaceably on a donkey. 
Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl, sorry, the fowl, the foal of a donkey. The fowl of a donkey would have been even more spectacular, I guess. Here was, here was Jesus coming to fulfill that prophecy, but coming peaceably, not like the all-conquering king. But then there was also a sacredness to it as well. Jesus was born of a virgin mother. He rode into Jerusalem for this moment, the triumphal entry on a virgin donkey, and his body would be laid in a virgin tomb. There was a sacredness to it as well. But here was the provision, a simple act of obedience, and this simple act of obedience produced the sweetest kind of worship. You know, sometimes you might be challenged. You're simply doing the the, the simple things, the things that make sense, the things that, that just sense that God would have you do. But people will challenge you for that. What are you doing? What are you doing? Jesus preempted that. He actually, he actually said to them, somebody may ask, what is it that, that you are doing? And you were to simply say, the Lord needs it. When our time on the ship came to an end, the Lord seemed to be speaking to us about leaving, leaving the doulos and, and going to the US. When I first talked to Bron about this, she actually burst into tears. And I thought, that's odd. Um, I wonder what's going on. And uh, every time I tried to raise the topic with her, I, I, I think the Lord wants us to go and serve with OMUSA. Bron, Bron just said, no, no, no I, I can't even talk about it. I said, what's wrong with America? You're this Disneyland and stuff. And she said, I don't know. I can't explain it, but, but, but no, I, I don't even want to talk about it. We had this long journey from, um, from Malaysia across the Indian Ocean to the uh, uh, east coast of Africa. And, and on that journey, we decided, okay, we won't bring it up. We won't talk about it at all. But when we get there, we really have to make a decision because we're supposed to leave the ship. And where are we going? And over that trip, at some point, Bron went to see the director, Francois Vosloo, a very discerning man, a wonderful gift of discernment. She was pretty sure that he would agree with her, that we shouldn't be going to America. That's America's got enough Christians and missionaries and so forth. Nope, we don't need to go to America. And when she went to see Francois, she explained her hesitation and so forth. And, you know, and Stuart thinks this, but, you know, America doesn't need us and there's lots of Americans there, apparently. Why do they need a couple of Australians and so forth? And Francois just looked at her and he said, you wouldn't do it for America, but would you do it for Jesus? And in that moment, Bron knew immediately the Lord had spoken to her. And she only needed a word. She only needed to know that's what Jesus wanted. She only needed to know that the Lord needs it. And once she knew she had those words, the Lord needs it. She had all the conviction she needed, and we were good to go. Sometimes you'll be challenged. Simple acts of obedience. Hey, how challenging can that be? I mean, it's just a, it's a one percenter. What's your objection? Nonetheless, you may be challenged from time to time with that, and that's where you need that conviction. Yes, I know, but the Lord needs it. 
It might seem strange, but the Lord needs it. It might seem odd to you that that I'm not going to participate in this, but the Lord needs it. Sometimes it might be shepherding. It might be shielding somebody else in the body from something that is not good for them. Sometimes it might be smothering something. It's just putting out a fire before it starts. Sometimes it might be a knock on. It might be, it might be those, little, those little incidental acts of service and, and practice of gifts of the Spirit that we use in the background. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows. We've just knocked on. Somebody else will run off with that and, and, and kick a glorious goal for the kingdom. We won't even be noticed. And sometimes, sometimes it's spoiling the work of the enemy. Satan wanting to do this or that in a given community, to divide, to do, to, to steal and kill and destroy the stuff that he loves to do. And in that moment, what does the Lord need to spoil it? We do it, the one percenters, the simple acts of obedience, because the Lord needs it, because the Lord needs it. Simple acts of obedience that produce the sweetest kind of worship. In verses 7 to 10, we, we see this, this worship all of a sudden coming around. It's like a crescendo of praise. Notice, firstly, it's they. And they is just the, just the disciples who had gone to get the donkey. They get the colt, they bring it back. It's just they. And they lay their robes on it. And then the they becomes many. There were many others, and they start also laying their robes down as well. And then there are others. It goes from they to many to others. This, this crowd of praise all of a sudden, sudden building and building and building. There are others, and they go out into the fields, and they cut branches, and they bring them, and they lay them on the path. So now we have the they, the many, and now the others as well. John tells us that there were palm leaves involved as well, which is where we get Palm Sunday from. Now, they wouldn't have been readily available in Jerusalem at this time of the season, so people would bring them from Jericho to, to wave and to, to be used in the worship, to build shelters and so forth, and, and people were taking those palm leaves and laying them down as well, others. So there's the they, the many, and the others, and there were those who went ahead, and there were those who followed. There was a crowd ahead and a crowd that followed, and so more and more people are gathering around Jesus as he's coming through on the donkey, creating a path. It starts with honour and it moves to praise, this beautiful crescendo of worship that is sweet to the heart of God. The honour of laying whatever you have down, a robe, a branch, a palm, whatever it is, making a path. It's like rolling out red carpet for God. And I guess as a church too, we, we have opportunities to do that when we welcome the King into our presence when we say, oh God, here is, here is your servant and I am broken. I need you to come. Here is, here is our body and we are broken. We need you to come into our brokenness and into our pain. And it starts by laying down, okay, okay, I want to come. <laughs> I'm the king of peace. I want to come and, and heal and, and do a beautiful work in you. But firstly, I need you to lay down whatever it is you have. What do you have? To create a red carpet for the Lord, we do have to lay things down. And I wonder, what is it that you have that Jesus is asking you to lay down for him at this particular time? This is a time where God 
the Spirit of God, I believe, wants to move through his whole church, the whole body acting in beautiful alignment and coordination with the Spirit of God. But it requires each of us to lay something down to create that pathway for the King of glory to enter in. It starts with honour, honouring God like royalty to walk this particular path, the crowd surrounding him, and it moves to praise. Hosanna, they cry. Literally, it means save. Oh, save. Now, we think of that, don't we, as more of a petition than a praise. The best way to perhaps understand the way that it became a, became a, a cry of praise is to perhaps put it in terms of our English into its past tense. Imagine if instead of saying, save, save, which sounds like a petition, what if we said, saved, 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 we're saved. It's a reflection of the reality of what it is that we know God can do for us. That becomes praise. Remember back in the previous chapter, verse 45, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. He gave his life. He ransomed himself so that we could be saved. What did he do? He took up your cross. He was laid in your tomb so that you could share in his resurrection. He took up your cross. Somebody had to die on that cross. It's going to be you. It's going to be him. He took up your cross. His body was laid in your tomb. Somebody was going to be laid in that tomb. It was going to be you. It was going to be him. And because he did that for you, you get to share in his resurrection. It's time of the year, it's Easter, magnificent time to let our eyes focus back on the cross of Jesus Christ, to come back to the cross. At this time, all eyes were on the coming king, and rightly so. He's the only solution to absolutely every problem. The Passover drew people to a place That was Jerusalem. Easter draws each of us to a person. That person is Jesus. And as we are drawn to him, you know the beautiful thing he does? And he does it every time. He puts a new song in our heart. Imagine families from the distant farms and villages and townships gathering together and traveling as a family and as a, as a group of families, a whole township traveling together, taking this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And as, as they ascended towards the temple, there were certain psalms, we call them psalms of ascent, certain psalms that they would recite together. They would sing these together and, and teach them to their kids. Psalm 126 is is such a psalm. It's a, it's a song, a song that God put into the hearts of his people. It goes something like this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, 
we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. You see, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, they will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This passage is a reminder. Simple acts of obedience, sometimes sown with tears, will ultimately produce a harvest of joy. Jesus does that every time. He puts the pot, the jar, back together even more beautifully than it ever was. And then lastly, note in verse 11, as we wait upon the Lord to, to do this, this very thing. In verse 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Does that feel to you a little bit like an anticlimax? Here is this the coming king, the path laid out for him, crowds gathering, this, this crescendo of praise building. He comes into Jerusalem. He walks up to the temple. He walks around the temple. He looks around everywhere. He sees everything. And then because it was getting late, he goes back to Bethany with the disciples. It's probably a reminder that in any situation where there is brokenness, pain, a need for the Lord to do a, to do a restorative work, it's a reminder that he sees, but he's never in a rush. I believe he sees our pain. I believe he sees our hurt. He sees the things which, which feel like unfixable cracks. He sees it all. He's just not in a rush. Now, would I like to change that? Yeah, <laughs> just like you. Why is it so? I think we get a glimpse of that. And John had a beautiful glimpse of that in Revelation 4. Revelation 4, there is this glimpse of the heavenly realm. And we see into the heavenly realm and, and, and John just, he doesn't have words for it. He says, he's, he's scrambling, you know, and I saw this and I saw this and I saw this. And, and the elders are kneeling down and, the, you know, they've got the incense going up like prayers before God. It's all marvelous, but then something's not quite right. There's a scroll and it can't be opened. Nobody, nobody's worthy to open this scroll. God has a scroll and nobody can open it. If something's wrong with that. Like who is worthy to open the scroll? They looked around, there's nobody who is worthy until suddenly they identified the lamb that was slain. Only the lamb that was slain could open that scroll. And what was the scroll? The scroll was God's decree. It's his purposes, it's his will. Somebody had to read that out. Somebody had to read out and make like a decree, this is the will of God. 
And like a creation, when the word was spoken, it was brought into being. Somebody had to read that scroll. Somebody had to read it out loud and bring it into being. And who better than the word? The lamb that was slain, the word would speak out that scroll. And as it was spoken out, would bring into being out of nothing, something. What is that something? The purposes of God, the will of God. Why was Jesus not in a rush? Why is God never in a rush? Why is, why is his timing so often baffling to us? Because he's got it covered. He is sovereign. He has read the decree out. He has read it out. He has brought it into being. And we can chill. We can relax. The lamb who was slain has decreed God's purposes and it will be so. He will see it through. He always will. He always does. It's guaranteed. So the work of God never has to be rushed. It will take place. Guaranteed. Because the Word says so. The Word says so. So it's our simple acts of obedience, yes, in faith, that produce the sweetest worship. And I pray that this week, as we, as we prepare, as we make way for the King, remembering the way he came into Jerusalem and, and imagining that to be true of our lives and our particular situation, that it will be in the simple acts of obedience to Jesus that you will experience the sweetest worship with him this week. Good Friday will be the best Friday you've ever had. And, and Easter Sunday, as we gather to gain to celebrate resurrection power, we will indeed see that resurrection power. This week, probably, as you prepare for Jesus to walk back into your heart and reclaim any lost territory, it will probably be just in simply listening to him and in those simple acts of obedience that you will see that take place. You, me, the whole church, his bride. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you. We thank you for this reminder tonight of how to, how to prepare ourselves for really, really sweet worship. It's not complicated. It just requires really simple acts of obedience. Lord, we longed for you to enter in the King of glory, to, to enter back in to our situations and to, and to mend what sometimes gets broken. Bring your healing touch to bear upon it. We pray for each and every one who is a part of our church at this time and ask that 
you would do that beautiful miracle work that only you can do. Bring about your healing love and restorative grace to touch each and every life this Easter, uniting us once more around the cross, central point of our faith, focusing our attention again on you in all your beauty and all your splendor. Jesus, you are lovely. You're beautiful. And we thank you for the reminder that because you have decreed it to be so, we can trust it. It is so. It truly is so. So come and speak your words of life over our lives, over the life of this church. Come and smother us in your love and bring your healing hand to bear. upon every life and every ministry in this church which belongs to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.